0: Hello, everyone out there tonight who is listening in on this um, History 101 podcast session. It's great to be back on the air, and what I've really enjoyed um, looking at more than anything are are overall numbers of uh, people who have been listening in to these uh, podcast uh, sessions. I'm not here to uh, flaunt anything, but nonetheless, what I'm very appreciative of is Just knowing how many people have been tuned in to these sessions and have somehow really benefited from them. So if all of you out there are still interested in this uh, topic, not just about signing their lives away or along with the previous podcast series on the Boston Massacre... I will have other uh, great things to come uh, down the road in terms of historic uh, subjects that uh, fascinate me. But nonetheless, we are still on the book Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortunes of the Men Who um, Signed the Declaration of Independence. We are now on to Colony Number 10, being none other than Virginia. Of course, that is where I reside. I have lived in Virginia all my life. My father... um, Is a Virginian all the way through Um, My mom um, attended the University of Virginia Just like my father did And how ironic that she was one of the first um, Classes of women to graduate um, undergrad Uh, And given uh, that here we are in the year 2020 It was 50 years ago that the University of Virginia Admitted uh, women as uh, undergrad to the university That's quite a milestone to say the least Well, Virginia is rich in history, and I should say because, uh, for one, um, I reside in central Virginia, but central Virginia itself is a fairly big region. To the west, about an hour and a half away, is uh, Charlottesville, not only home to the University of Virginia, but to Thomas Jefferson's um, beloved estate, Monticello. And then about an hour to an hour and a half east of here is the historic Triangle area, being none other than Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown. And about two hours east of here, you have the beaches, Virginia Beach, uh, Norfolk. And about two hours, or shall I say two, two and a half hours west of here, you have the Shenandoah Valley. It is safe to say that Virginia truly is for lovers, because there is something in Virginia that can cater to just about anybody when it comes to tourism. And in case any of you all want to know how Virginia's for Lovers uh, came about, well, go back to when Linwood Holton was governor from 1970 to 1974. That uh, tourism slogan uh, came about. So if, if you think long and hard, the slogan ver- known as Virginia's for Lovers has been around for just around 50 years or close to it. And Virginia does have something to offer everyone, which is great. So, as I said a moment ago, Virginia, or should I say now, Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies. How so? Well, even when the um, English first arrived in 1607, in the early years of the Jamestown settlement, the English settlers were well convinced that Virginia stretched all the way to the Pacific coast. And I guess they had no um, reason to think differently. But what I do know is that Virginia stretched as far west as Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin. Think about it. It's, it, it, it's part of that, what we would eventually call the Northwest Territory. Well, uh, Virginia is also referred to as the mother of presidents being eight. Anybody know which eight they are? I can tell you, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, Zachary Taylor, to Woodrow Wilson. And ironically, the second leading state in terms of overall number of presidents is Ohio, which was once part of Virginia, which has seven. Well, uh... Prior to the English coming in 1607, like any other colony, Indians inhabit what we now know as Virginia. The first people to arrive in Virginia, or what we now know as Virginia today, being the Indians, came about uh, 12,000 years ago, which would have still been around the time of the Ice Age era. Historians know now that Indians who came over to what we would call the New World and and eventually colonial America, arrived um, to uh, this region being the New World by means of um, traveling over the Bering Sea and into um, present-day North America. And think about it. The Ice Age, um, bodies of water are are, uh, covered with ice, And not just ordinary ice, but ice that is very thick, ice that makes uh, walking along uh, frozen bodies of water um, easy, easy to navigate from point A to point B. But by the year 1500, nearly two centuries, or should I say a century, rather, before the English actually arrive into Jamestown, there is a group of Indian uh, people, known as the Algonquian peoples. They are well well established in what we call Tidewater today. But this region, to the Algonquian, was known as Ticenna It was known as the Powhatan Confederacy from the 1500s up until 1677. And we know, based off of historical research, that about 30 tribes made up the group most notably the Powhatan the Mattapani, the Pamunkey the Nanzaman, the the Weyanoke the Paspaheeg Appomattox just to name a few and hey Appomattox any of you Virginians should know that's um another um the, the Appomattox tribe is is um, for whom the Appomattox River is named after but of course the Indians would have referred to it as the Apomatox River. So, when the English arrive in uh, 1607, what is the population of Native Americans living in Tsenacomica, or what we refer to as Tidewater? The number is between thirteen and 14,000. Uh, that is a very, very strong number. Now, prior to sixteen o seven, were there previous European expeditions into present-day Virginia? That answer is yes. Uh, the Spanish, uh, a group of Spanish Jesuits, explored uh, the Chesapeake Bay in the sixteenth century. And between fifteen eighty three and sixteen eighty, between fifteen eighty three and fifteen eighty four, pardon me, <laughs> Sir Walter Raleigh of England leads an expedition of the Atlantic coast. Okay, Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, does anybody know what the capital of North Carolina is? My wife would know. She's originally from North Carolina and lived in the current capital, or not just the current capital, but the capital of North Carolina for some time. The answer is Raleigh, named after none other than Sir Walter Raleigh himself. Well, um... Sir Walter Raleigh, even though, okay, yes, Raleigh, North Carolina, is named after him, but something he does that's very um, essential is that he names Virginia, Virginia. Why is it? Because Virginia is named in honor of, of Queen Elizabeth I as she was the Virgin Queen. She never married, and... The Virgin Queen being none other than Queen Elizabeth I, she was the last of five monarchs of the House of Tudor and ruled England from 1558 to 1603. When she dies in 1603, her cousin, being James, who would become James I, succeeds her on the throne. And given that Elizabeth I did not marry, and obviously did not have children of her own, the next immediate heir in line is none other than her cousin, James I, for whom the first colonial, or shall I say the first English colonial settlement in the New World is named after. Jamestown being none other named for King James I. But interesting enough, real brief about Elizabeth I, she is the daughter of Henry VIII. We all know who Henry VIII is. He was the King of England. He is responsible for leading the Protestant Reformation. I mean, there were other individuals who had a big part in the Protestant Reformation, but he in particular. Do you know why? Because during this time, the Catholic Church is... um, Implementing its. The Catholic Church in general is trying to um, reign its influence on England, not just so much on England, but throughout most of Europe. And under the Catholic um, Church's uh, doctrinal uh, rules, divorces aren't allowed to happen. Well, Henry VIII is struggling. For I mean, the man's married more than once, and he is so desperate for a son. And Queen Elizabeth's um, father, obviously being none other than Henry VIII, he is so fed up with the fact that it's not so much that his and that any of his wives can't produce him a son, but he wants a he wants a separation from the Catholic Church. Well, the Pope refuses to grant him an annulment, so he goes about. Um, Leading a Reformation that we call the Protestant Reformation. Now, when Protestant is short for protesting, in other words, you're vehemently expressing your opposition. Well, take another religious figure, real quick Martin Luther. Um, you know, the Lutheran Church named after him. Well, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses in uh, challenging uh, the Catholic Church's uh, practices. So, here we are at a time in 1607 where, yes, there is exploration in the New World, which might seem uh, extravagant and exciting. There is also a lot of discord in the form of religious persecution. And Queen Elizabeth I, believe it or not herself, was imprisoned for nearly a year on the grounds of supporting Protestant rebels. She was jailed by her half-sister Mary, Queen Mary, do, you, do we all know whom Queen Mary got referred to as? Bloody Mary. Why? Because she, prosecuted, she persecuted Protestants severely, left and right. As a matter of fact, her reign in England was the last uh, modern reign that in which um, England was going to do whatever it took to restore Catholicism to the throne. And that's what Queen Mary was all about. Well, she dies, and Elizabeth takes her place, and it's probably a blessing, not that, you know, it's a blessing because Queen Elizabeth helps restore order to England at this time. Well, anyways, um, as I mentioned a short while ago, uh, King James I takes over for his cousin when she dies, and... Jamestown obviously is named after King James I. And what does King James I establish? And we have it at churches today, most notably in the Episcopal Church, the King James Bible. All right, Uh, true or false? Was life in the Virginia colony a struggle? I hope that most of us, or 99.9% of us, would know the answer. The answer is yes, it was a struggle. What kind of struggles were there? Conflicts with Indians over land and provisions to conflict amongst the inner group of colonists or Englishmen to the starving time of 1609 to the Indian massacre of 1622. My father, he enjoys history just as much as I do. and We've been to Jamestown a lot in recent years. My wife and I sometimes... There have been times where we've taken him, like, for on a Memorial weekend um, outing. And one of my favorite stories that my dad will tell me, and no matter how many times he's told it to me, I do have to appreciate it. Um, and it's not all for the right reasons, but it does make sense. My dad told me that when he was growing up that everybody lived happily ever after. In other words, everybody learned to coexist with one another peacefully. We're talking about the English and the Indians. My dad said that there was a picture of the English getting off their, off their three ships, being the Godspeed, the Susan Constant, and the Discovery. And they were all just being welcomed by the Indians. How false is that? Honestly, we all know today that Indians despised Europeans. Sure they were willing to help them, but they knew what the Europeans were all about. They referred to them as savages, heathens, people who really in a sense were just a bunch of greedy SOBs looking for natural resources, wanting to make profits left and right, and go about um, living, um, or go about trying to um, Christianize the Indians into believing one God instead of multiple gods. Well, when the English arrived in 1607, they were truly convinced they were going to find gold. They, were, they truly were convinced they were going to find every known natural resource to mankind and strike it so rich that they wouldn't have to worry about working for the rest of their lives. <laughs> How dead wrong were they? Um, most of these um, men who came over in 1607 didn't have a clue really what they were getting themselves into. Um, The council was given special instructions not to release the names of the leaders until they had arrived. And that probably was smart because Lord only knows if you told it on the ships, there probably would have been uh, multiple mutinies or I should say revolts. We now know that John Smith was even um, a prisoner on one of the ships because he had uh, challenged authority. Of course, John Smith was smart enough not long after the settlement was established by challenging those above him by saying, those who shall not work shall not eat. And it is safe to say that um, all of the uh, 105 or 106 men who did arrive, I still find it hard to believe that only one man lost his life before arriving um, over to Jamestown. When you consider all of the... um, unpleasantries that um, sailing uh, to the New World brought about. But thank heavens there was a smart man in Christopher Newport who uh, was successful in um, making navigations to the New World. Apparently, this was about his ninth um, ninth or tenth trip around the world, so he obviously knew what he was doing. And if any of you know how Newport News in Virginia got its name, well, it's named after none other than Christopher Newport himself. He brought the news that more settlers were coming on um, other voyages to Jamestown. So, thank heavens that uh, we had him as a a ship navigator, because uh, if we didn't have him, I'm not sure who else out there would have been uh, capable of uh, being able to make successful voyages on multiple occasions from Europe to the New World. But on another uh, sour note, by 1624... Only 3,400 out of 6,000 settlers survived the journey over from England to Jamestown. And I did the math on this. About nearly 60% died to just above 40% survival. Why do you think so many people died over from England to Jamestown? Well, there's a variety of reasons. Number one, I, I can say that the reason why the death rate was so high is because when people came to Jamestown, they were adjusting from one season to another. They could not ad- adapt to new settings. They had, were on the borderline of missing a planning season. In other words, you just couldn't pick up where you left off. And it wasn't like you had arrived and someone said, here is your new home that was just built, and here's where you could start your new life. It didn't work that way. And yes, people came in droves, but not everyone survived. So the bottom line is people were taking gambles left and right, thinking they were going to strike it rich in the New World, and not everyone did. Those who did were truly in the elite minority, but it didn't mean that, that success just happened overnight. It didn't. And we should also be reminded that from 1611 up until the beginning of 1619, Jamestown was under martial law. And who instituted this martial law? Sir Thomas Dale. There's a high school not not too terribly far from where I live named Thomas Dale High School, named after none other than Sir Thomas Dale himself. Sir Thomas Dale was a big advocate of martial law. He knew that there had to be something to restore order to the colony. Because think about it, from 1607 to 1611, there is leadership left and right. Um, there is no proper structure. So Sir Thomas Dale has to come up with a plan to restore order and get people to eventually um, work their land And we're not talking a 1,000 acres. We're talking about small parcels, like 10 acres at best. So he basically goes about dividing um, homes into subplots where everybody would be allowed to work um, their lands, and as a result of working their lands, they would be rewarded. And over time, these rewards became a success. And so what do you have by 1619? the first legislative assembly established in the New World, none other than in Jamestown, what we would call the General Assembly. But how many um, men make up this General Assembly? About There are 22 legislators. There are two from each, um, what we might say today is a township or district, but in the 17th century they were referred to as uh sites known as old Ber- as bermuda 100 um flower Dew 100 uh, any in other words the reason why they're called hundreds is because you need to have at, at minimum 100 people or more to sustain a town so you have two representatives from each um uh plantation to represent um to represent that um that uh area and I think it makes sense to have two because think about it: if one person passed away, someone else has got to take over and represent um, the plantation or the the site on um, known as, one, as something hundred. And there is a governor, and that governor obviously was um, Lord De La War, who was the first um, governor, first colonial governor in Virginia. And the governor has what's called a council of state. In other words, it's a, a select group, or shall I say, an elite group of men who um, advise the governor on um, important uh, decisions. Not just decisions in general, but they go about advising the governor what the House of the General Assembly is uh, proposing. Well, in 1619, the this first legislative assembly in Virginia convened for six days. I did read the book last year, 1619, Jamestown and the Forging of American Democracy. It is safe to say that for six days, this first legislative body in the new world probably got more accomplished than what Congress gets accomplished nowadays. I do know that one of the um, rules that they uh, put into play had to do with... um, relations uh, concerning Indians. In other words, between 1614 and 1622 is seen as a uh, era of peaceful relations with the Indians. But in order for these relations to stay the way they are, there have to be rules in play. In other words, if someone wants in the House of... Um, or the, the General Assembly wants to establish uh, business ties with Indian tribes it has to go before the whole body and it would require a debate and there obviously has to be a majority vote. But in other words, John Smith, of course there was a John Smith, but I'm going to use it as a fictitious name as an example here. John Smith just can't go on his own over to the Powhatan uh, tribe and say, hey, I i want to do business with you all and um, here's what I have in store. If John Smith does that, then he is betraying the legislative body. For all we know, he could be selling secrets to the Indians about our um, government, about um, the plantations themselves. And if John Smith did something like that then and was found um, to be harboring the opposition, he would have been executed. So just because we have a governing body, it doesn't mean that Even legislative assemblymen are free to do whatever it is they want to do. They are to be held accountable in the same way as their constituents are. Shouldn't it be the same way today? We would like to think so, but given the way society is nowadays, it's it's not a pretty state. Let's put it that way. Well, what became the cash crop that, should I say, was the big lucrative maker that saved the Virginia colony. Well, that's an easy one, tobacco. It's the crop that saves the day, because prior to tobacco being grown, um, the English really just had no success. They had tried um, uh, bringing sassafras to England, they tried uh, even growing wine grapes, they had to learn the hard way that um, the soil just wasn't right. They even tried making glass, and they did bring, um, what do you call it, um, professional uh, tradesmen over from Europe to Jamestown to help do this, most notably German and Polish um, glassmakers. Well, it didn't work. The, the irony to it all is that there is a fortification um site at Jamestown that shows where the first uh, glass making um, setup was construed. And when you go to the original Jamestown Fort, you can actually see a reproduction of um, people who are skilled glass blowers making glass. It is an amazing thing to see. Well, uh, tobacco, as I said, does save the day. And and it is so profitable that people grow it left and right like there is no tomorrow. It benefits people from all ranks of society. It's even seen as, a, as the um, poor man's rich cash crop. In other words, if, you don't, if you're not in that gentry class, you can still grow tobacco in Virginia, and you could still profit even if you have only 20, 10 to 20 acres of uh, land. And tobacco is so valuable that, of course, those who are well-off, you know, they can afford just about anything. But tobacco is so profitable that you could even have paid your own debts off. If you were to get married, a husband and wife could use tobacco as a means of a um, marriage payment to pay the minister. And here's a good uh, question. Is tobacco a new world crop? Uh, the answer is no. The Indians were already growing tobacco before the English arrived. However, the Indians were growing tobacco on um, on their terms. In other words, they weren't growing it left and right like there was no tomorrow. Uh, let's put it this way. The Indians practiced what we call crop rotation. They rotated their crops. They rotated tobacco. They weren't dependent on tobacco left and right like the English were. And the Indians also grew a different kind of tobacco that had a much more what you call bitter taste to it. The English, on the other hand, were growing a tobacco that had a much sweeter taste. And it was um, based in large part off of what John Rolfe um, brought from... um, from a place in Spain known as Varina. And what do you know there is a an area in Henrico County not far the the neighboring county uh from where I live in Chesterfield called Varina. And Varina has um rich history um as we move um further into Virginia history uh, not to get too far ahead but but something to point out that uh, Thomas Jefferson's son-in-law uh, Thomas Mann Randolph, his family owned valuable property in Verina, but then again, if you 're a Randolph, you own just about any just you own just about any large amount of land in Virginia and beyond Virginia, especially if you go into present day West Virginia and ohio but i 'll save that part for another uh, segment on Virginia. Um, but nonetheless, um, what is the most unfortunate thing about tobacco is not so much that it depletes the soil, but what tobacco itself did, as much as profitable as it was, what tobacco did is that it uh, caused f- dramatic tension between Eng- the English and the Indians. It caused so much bad blood that Indians were forced off of their land. Uh, through means of war and conflict to where the English were just growing tobacco left and right that after about three or four plantings, that soil was gone. So once the soil's gone, you start encroaching on uh, Indian's, Indian territory and you're just asking for further violence. So sadly, uh, a lot of um, land conflict had to do with... Um, Not just so much the mismanagement, but the abuse of growing tobacco. But you have to remember by this point in time, the English really don't know any better, in large part because they are addicted to it. Once you are addicted to a profit of a lucrative cash crop like tobacco, there's no going back. Well, um, given that the Indians uh, were living in what is known as the uh, Chesapeake Bay region, what does Chesapeake mean? It means abundance of shellfish. It's an interesting uh, term, but that is how uh, the Indians uh, came about naming, um, referring, I should say, the Chesapeake Bay being, uh, the abun- being abundance of uh, shellfish. Now, in the 17th century, most notably by around 1676, uh, what percentage of indentured servants made up the Virginia population? That answer is about 80%. And what is going on in 1676? Bacon's Rebellion, led by none other than Nathaniel Bacon, who basically led an uprising of um, of men, most notably indentured servants, who were very resentful of the power that was... Um, Held, vested in the hands of those who were what we would call the ruling planter class. In this case, it would have made up only 20%. But 20% controlling all the land, that is a very, uh, what you call, an ec- a huge economic uh, disparity in terms of um, land ownership. So this uh, rebellion... Um, it's kind of like the equivalent, perhaps, of a 9/11 of its time. It it did a lot of uh, damage to um, to the um, Jamestown um, government structure, uh, and of course, Mr. Uh, Bacon himself would be eventually executed as a result of it. But in 1677, you have uh, what is the Middle Plantation uh, Treaty, and for whom is Middle Plantation named after? Well, for starters, it was an unincorporated town in 1632, which would eventually become Williamsburg in 1699. And what's ironic about the year 1699? The capital moves from Jamestown to Williamsburg. As for Middle Plantation, it's, it was located on high ground halfway across the Virginia Peninsula between the James and the York Rivers. It was the first major inland settlement for the colony, and it provided a link between Jamestown and Chiskayak Settlement that was located across the peninsula on the York River. So basically, Middle Plantation really served as a, yes, being the first major inland settlement, but it was the first major uh, settlement protection to keep out uh, Indians from... um, launching attacks, and Middle Plantation saw the founding of William and Mary in 1693. And to think William and Mary, uh, two years ago, celebrated its 325th anniversary, of course today it's 327 years old. And I clearly remember 27 years ago in 1993 when William and Mary celebrated its tricentennial anniversary. That school has a lot to be uh, proud of. And um, I do know that one of its founders uh, was none other than Reverend James Blair. As a matter of fact, he is buried at historic Jamestown, and he is buried under a tree that is referred to as the mother-in-law tree that's family-related. Well, um, you know, in Virginia we now move to um, the 18th century where we are now going to be uh, talking about leading up to um, the fight for independence. The fight for independence from whom? None other than England. Which House of Burgess leaders led the opposition fight over the infamous Stamp Act of 1765? Stamp Act? Taxation without representation, Parliament um, passing this law that places duties or taxes on all legal documents like marriage certificates, um, anything that's paper related. I can't imagine getting married in the year 1765 and all of a sudden it's not so much a tax that's put on the document, but everything comes to a halt. And rightfully so. Why? Why? Because there's because there's taxation without representation. Well, the big house of the primary house of Burgess leaders who are leading this opposition fight are Patrick Henry and Richard Henry Lee. And thank heavens we had them because uh, a year later Parliament repeals this Stamp Act. But of course, once they repealed that, they obviously had to find something else to um, test our waters with, none other than the infamous Townshend Duties of 1767. But what legislation, what legislation did Parliament enact that ultimately caused Virginia to begin severing its ties with England? The answer is none other than the Quebec Act of 1773. This legislation stripped Virginians, most notably of the upper um, classes, their land ownership rights in the Ohio Valley and Great Lakes regions, George Washington owned land in the Ohio Valley, and even into western Pennsylvania. All of that was stripped from him as a result of the Quebec Act, and that was a huge blow to Virginia, because prior to 1773, Virginia is still on pretty good terms with England, and as I've said from a previous podcast, it's one thing to declare independence from England or even want separation alone. But if you're one of the other colonies, whether you're New Hampshire, North Carolina, uh, New Jersey, Georgia, Massachusetts, of course we can't forget Massachusetts because they are the um what do you call it? They're the ones laying the ground the ground um or the foundation for independence. Who must they go through first? before any movement of independence in general can take place, none other than Virginia. How so? Because Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies. She's the one that probably would have the most to lose. So in 1774, the House of Burgesses is dissolved by John Murray, a.k.a. Lord Dunmore. He is the last royal governor in Virginia. And when he dissolves the House of Burgesses, he takes flight and returns back to England. It's probably a good thing. He'd, he'd stayed a little bit longer. I'm sure that um, rebels like Patrick Henry and others would have done everything there was in, in power to have seen to it that he would have hung in effigy. So in 1776, Patrick Henry becomes the first non-royal governor in Virginia. And May 15th, 1776 is a very important uh, date for Virginia, because Virginia has already had more than one convention gathering on on what they are going to do with regards to uh, their relationship with England. Well, on May 15th of 1776, Virginia officially declares its independence from England and adopts George Mason's... Virginia Declaration of Rights. This is the precursor to what Thomas Jefferson ultimately drafts being that famous Declaration of Independence. And how many um, men from Virginia signed the Declaration of Independence? I will give you a number. It's between 7 and 10. That answer is 7. 7. They are the following men. Carter Braxton, Benjamin Harrison, Thomas Jefferson, Richard Henry Lee, Francis Lightfoot Lee, Thomas Nelson Jr., George Wythe. And I got to tell you, all seven of these men are from Virginia are very remarkable men. Matter of fact, Pennsylvania and Virginia are the two leading colonies with the highest number of signers who signed the Declaration of Independence, Pennsylvania 9, Virginia 7. I think it's safe to say that I already knew which two I would be talking about, but then I had to decide, given that there were seven, that I would need to talk about two more, giving it a total of four. So the two I knew that were going to be automatic givens were Thomas Jefferson and George Wythe. The other two men that I chose were Carter Braxton and Benjamin Harrison, and there are reasons for that. Well, you know, we have a lot more ground still to cover with Virginia, And I think it's safe to say that because Virginia is the largest of the thirteen colonies, not so much because of her territory, but what these four men did for Virginia, of course, one of them being Thomas Jefferson, who went on to become the founding, um, become the uh, author of the Declaration of Independence. But it just so turns out that um, the other three signers, in line, are um, are of equal importance. And we will be talking about these four men in the next podcast session. That is all for this uh, podcast session. Um, But in the meantime, um, I look forward to um, coming back on the air here soon. Take care for now.